Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to episode number 51, which will be a bit different than our other episodes. Last week, Tim and I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Leighton Flowers. Dr. Flowers is the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptist, as well as an adjunct professor of theology for Trinity Seminary. We were introduced to Dr. Flowers through his website and his podcast called Soteriology 101, and we invited him on our podcast to discuss his journey out of Calvinism and the impact of his ministries now. Since Jordan wasn't able to join our discussion, we wanted to discuss the interview together before we play it back for you. So, Tim. Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. I am your host, along with my co-host, Jordan Rob. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi, Tim. Listen, obviously, this is going to be a longer episode. Um, the interview with Leighton, I think, went over an hour and a half or close to it. And he was super nice to even grant us that kind of time, especially considering what he does and how popular his podcast is. I did want to say a couple of things before we played it for everyone. Now that I've had a chance to listen back and reflect on it, the first thing I've noticed is that he sounds really intelligent because he is intelligent. And I sound like a babbling baboon because <laughs> it's very clear that he can just kind of flow ord wise. And I'm also still kind of starstruck while I'm talking to him. And so I just sound like I'm a third grader trying to talk to a professor of all this stuff. Um, about I, I think you, uh, I think you settled down and kind of got in the flow a little bit yeah. as it went on. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. were definitely very nervous to begin with. Oh yeah. Sir, 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 Layton, Mr. Flowers, Dr. Flowers, Layton Flowers. Can I call you that? I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. It was a lot of that. Um, it was also, I didn't know he tends to be long winded and that's not a bad thing because what he says is always so good. So I did. I also didn't didn't know like where he was going to go with things and what he would say to my questions. And I didn't want to keep him super pigeonholed. I wanted him to be able to kind of talk freely and let the conversation go where it needed to go. Um, but I must say, overall, it was one of my one of my favorite interviews that I think we've done yet. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. Uh, went over a lot of good topics that because when you you know, you've been YouTubing Calvinism versus Arminianism for how many weeks now? And you, you get one side or the other, and you kind of get the echo chamber on either side. So it was good to have the discussion with him to just more personalize it, get his view on things, get where he came from and his background and his story and kind of relate it to so our listeners could, could appreciate it. Yeah, yeah I, I also found that he was very fair uh, mm-hmm. and that he, he usually is fair. And he's also very cordial to the other side of the conversation, which is not always 
reciprocated. Um, but he can explain himself very well. And for me personally, I enjoy that he uses a really good blend of exegesis, but also logic and um, you know philosophical ideas as well to kind of paint the a more I think a more robust and well-rounded picture of his viewpoint, which I really appreciated. So yeah, it was really um, definitely a good interview, a lot of fun for sure. And we did we did get him fired up, Rob, a little bit. To the point where he even apologized, which, hey, I'm like, this is great. This is great. Uh, so having him get a little, uh, you know, emotional, I thought was great. Yeah. I like when he accuses you of looking like a Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was good. No, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, listening back to it, I, I really appreciated that. Um, what you said, and you said a couple times during the interview that he just does a really good job of being respectful of people that don't agree with him. And I think that's something that's really important in those kinds of, you know, debate uh, arena, the arena of debate. Um, and then the other thing I just appreciated about the whole interview is just that this is like a really, it's kind of a deep dive topic, I feel like for Christians in general, like the whole Armenianism versus Calvinism and everything in between is kind of something that you don't necessarily get into unless you're either really into theology or you're in uh, seminary or something like that. Um, but I th it was good to, to listen to him talk about it and kind of put a, uh, a more passionate face on this, I guess, something that you kind of think of as like a dry, you know, why does this matter to me kind of topic. Yeah. Well, especially because he presents a third option to those two things. You know, most sure. people who are in Christianity either know of this term Calvinism or this term Arminianism, and they and they pretty much boil it down to you have free will or you don't. And for right or for wrong, that's kind of somewhat, I guess, somewhat true a little bit. But uh, Leighton offers this third view called a traditionalist view, or he likes to call it a provisionalist view, um, which actually is very very rooted in church history and a lot of theologians have have pushed this view for a long time but right now Leighton would say that we're in a very Calvinist centric um, time of, of American Christianity uh, or at least those guys have some of the biggest voices so that's a little more widespread and well known but Leighton I think is a much needed voice for this other viewpoint that in my opinion as I'm discovering it, I think reconciles scripture as a whole better than a Calvinist viewpoint would. So I, yeah, the interview was great. He, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to some, I'm just trying to give people who are going to be listening to it just, you know, kind of a taste, but it's just a very well done. He's a very well thought out speaker. And sometimes it's kind of hard to catch what he's saying because he moves pretty quick. But if you listen, you'll get a really, I think healthy view of a, just a different way to read some very important texts that have a big impact on how we see scripture and how we do ministry. I mean, this stuff does, does matter because if you believe certain things about how God works or if you're, if people are elected or not, that does change how you see the world and how you see ministry happen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jordan, I know you weren't in the discussion, but one of the things that you were curious about was biblical study and the approach of scripture and how to have humility as you approach it. Do you, do you feel like that, that was answered for you um, during the discussion? Um, how we should 
have that sense of humility despite whatever our theological leanings would be? Yeah, I think, um, well, my question was kind of, uh, because Leighton talks, I, I've read a couple of his articles on his website and he, because he used to be really uh, Calvinist um, in his approach to everything. And he talks a lot about why he's not anymore and how, you know, that changed for him. And the reason that that changed for him wasn't because he went out trying to disprove what he already believed. Nobody really does that. Um, but that he went to try and dive deeper and reinforce what he already believed and kind of came out of the other side of that, uh, with a lot of changed, uh, theology. So yeah, my question was kind of, um, how do we approach scripture and, and, and Bible study and theology with the right balance of an open mind towards, because we have to admit that we don't have everything right. <laughs> you know, none of us are like a hundred percent accurate on our interpretation of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we have an open mind, but also like hold firm on things that we want to hold for, firm on? Um, and it's kind of this weird balance because, you know, soteriology or the study of salvation is kind of, that's something that you definitely want to like be firm on and, and, and hold on to your position of. And so my thinking going into this uh, before you guys recorded was kind of how do, how do you go through the process of changing something so, so foundational about what you believe? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of my question. Um, And I think he kind of answered that throughout Uh, maybe not all at once, but yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I suppose without further further ado, we'll play this interview and um, take your time, listen through it, leave, let us know what you think in the comments, and um, we're interested to hear people's reactions to this interview with Dr. Leighton Flowers. So, without further ado, here is the interview. All right. Um, well, um, I'm going to say Dr. Flowers for now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. Um you know, for the listeners out there, I this whole thing happened because I emailed you saying thank you for your podcast. Uh, Rob turned me on to your podcast um, really probably about two or three months ago, and I just kind of went. I drive a lot for work, so it was just episode after episode of of what you were talking about with kind of defining um, Calvinism versus. I, I, do you is, is it a traditionalist viewpoint? Is that what you would subscribe to? Yeah, traditionalism has been the most popular uh, label for our view, and it's really rooted in Southern Baptist traditionalism because it's a, tr- a traditional view of Southern most Southern Baptists over the last hundred years or so. Um, and and so some people have called it that. I, I don't necessarily like that label all that much because it makes it sound like it's just based on a tradition versus obviously it being based upon scripture or something like that. And 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 some people point out the fact that, that Southern Baptists have, have, have had Calvinism uh, in its roots from the beginning, and they think that that's, uh, you know, inaccurate to call our view traditional. Uh, so, uh, and so I, I've liked the term provisionism better because it includes our brothers and sisters who are outside of the Southern Baptist world. Uh, and it really, the word provision, I just, I just think that's a beautiful word because God provides. And that's actually the name of my new book. Uh, uh, it's God's provision for all, which is a defense of the provisionist perspective and kind of a positive affirmation of of God's provision for all people. 
Great. Uh, that's a great way to define some of those terms because for me, sometimes terms, I'm just kind of like, wait, how do you define this? How do you define that? So thanks for doing that. So yeah, so you know, I, I, I went down your podcast and I just soaked it all up. So many great episodes, um, especially the one around uh, you did a while ago with, with Megan Phelps on the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. I listened to all his stuff and I listened to that episode. And when she brought that up, I kind of cringed like, oh, I thought about that you know, myself. So anyway, all that to say, I appreciate you coming on. Um, you are way smarter than us. So we're honored to have you on to share some of your knowledge. Um, for the listeners out there, why don't you give a, just kind of a, a little background on who you are, uh, some of your credentials, and, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, uh, well, I work for Texas Baptist. It's a denomination here in Texas, and I am the director of evangelism and apologetics. Um, and so the, the bulk of my job, though, a lot of people know me through my ministry with Sociology 101. Um, that's very little uh, of the time that I spend on a day-to-day basis. Uh, my, my real job is evangelism and, and uh, helping uh, churches and pastors in uh, evangelizing the lost and reaching the state of Texas uh, primarily is our, our focus area. But obviously we have mission work and other things outside of this state as well. Um, and so that, that's my heart. Um, that's, that's what I did, uh, you know, before I became the director of evangelism, I was a director of youth evangelism for 13 years prior to that. We did ministries, Kyle, see at the pole and super summer and youth evangelism conferences. And that's been, uh, the bulk of my, my life and ministry has been in, in that field. Um, now in the education side of things and, and kind of a backstory, uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist home. My dad was a Southern Baptist youth pastor. Uh, my mom, uh, both love the Lord and, and, and raised me up in the way that I should go, so to speak, me and my two older brothers. And we, uh, uh, we, we were taught probably typical Southern Baptist traditional sociology, whosoever will kind of theology. Anybody uh, can believe, anybody can be saved. God, Christ died for everybody. And the only people who are going to end up going to hell are because they reject God and not because God rejected them. It's not a lack of provision for them, uh, nothing like that. But instead, anybody and everybody can be saved because God wants le- legitimately and, and realistically wants everyone to repent. But it's it's your choice as to whether you'll, you'll repent and believe or suppress the truth and unrighteousness and grow hardened to it. That's what I was taught. That's basic understanding of what I believed. But I went off to college uh, and I was introduced to a good friend who's still a good friend of mine who gave me a John MacArthur book. Uh, and uh, I was actually on the mission field in Russia and I read this book and it introduced me to Calvinistic sociology, which is for your listeners, a uh, summary of it would be God has chosen who he was going to save before the world ever began. Mm-hmm. Um, and he effectuates that in their life. In other words, that he chooses them and then he changes their heart to make them want to come. And if God doesn't choose you, then you'll never want to come. You're going to be born a God hater who hates the light of the gospel, who hates the revelation of God. And you will always reject the things of God unless God wants you to accept it. And he will cause you to want to uh, follow him and accept him. And, and I'd never heard this theology before. Uh, and all of a sudden passages like Romans nine were brought to my attention and Ephesians one were brought to my attention and it were introduced to me from a Calvinistic very smart sounding, very, uh, you know, obviously articulate pastor like John MacArthur, good author. And I bought right in. I just jumped in hook, line and sinker and thought, why is my church not taught me this? Yeah. Who's been hiding this awesome truth from me that I was. <laughs> and so I, I, I became a full fledged five point Calvinist over the course of the next two or three months as I began to read books from R.C. Sproul, the chosen by God book. 
uh, Sproul. Uh, some people correct the way I pronounce that, Sproul. Um, and and uh, then Piper became one of my favorite guys. Matter of fact, I even had him come speak at some of our events that I that I direct because I, I kind of have a man crush on him because <laughs> I just love all of his stuff. And I just read, I was kind of part of this little groupie of a young wrestlers performing Calvinist. I was definitely went through the cage stage of Calvinism where I try to convince everybody else <laughs> to become a Calvinist like I had become and, uh, and, and hurt some relationships there. My church, uh, home church that I went back and was going to be a youth intern with my youth pastor who I'd grown up under. I was, I was a full-fledged Calvinist when I went back and my church happened to be going through a split over this particular issue. Oh, man. So I jumped right into the middle of that. Uh, and and uh, to, to, to my credit, I did come out and confess to my pastor. I was a Calvinist and, and, and backed out of that role before, uh, before becoming uh, a part of that staff and causing more division. And I ended up leaving our home church and, and that split over this issue and going to the new church that split there in Wiley. And my parents were a part of all of that. The people they had to say goodbye to that they had grown to love over years because they didn't want to be involved in the split. And it was a lot of uh, uh, emotional things going on there. I, my, my parents telling me to kind of calm down about it and to, to pray on it for a while. And me just telling them, why would, it, why would I back off of the sovereign word of God Almighty? And, and I felt like a kind of a warrior in the, in the, in the cause of making God's word known and, and uh, his sovereignty known. And so that, it just... That became one of those issues for me. It really did. Can I ask you just one question while we're in the middle of the story? Did you find that that during this time of you kind of going from point A to point B, these different viewpoints, it, it caused a lot of tension internally, a lot of anxiety internally of that view of like, well, is this, you know, I, I was believing this about scripture, but now I think this is the right way. And did that, did that you know, happen to you internally where there was a lot of like tension going on? Well, th- there were some like questions that I remember grappling with, you know, usually the first question that somebody grapples with when they're introduced to Calvinism is, well, okay, why do we evangelize then? You know, because you automatically think, well, God's elected everybody. He's going to effectually save everybody. So why evangelize? And of course, Calvinists have answers to those kinds of questions about God ordaining the ends as well as the means and these kinds of things. And so um, I, I learned those answers and, and they were satisfactory to me. I, I couldn't, I was just convinced when reading like Romans nine, for example, um, it just from the Calvinistic vantage point, I'd never heard it explained in any other way except the Calvinistic vantage point. And on my podcast, those that listen know that sometimes I use the illustration of a duck and a rabbit, those pictures that are called bleaks that look like both the duck and the rabbit. And, and you can see that picture and there's some of them that are more complicated than the duck and the rabbit one, like the old lady, young lady, how frustrating it is when you see the old lady, for example, but you can't see the young lady and everybody's going, no, she, she, she's right there. Don't you see her? And you're going, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it. Um, that's the kind of the way I would describe myself as a Calvinist. I saw Romans nine describing a duck and then some other theologian or person I was reading said, no, well, it's a rabbit. And I go, what? <laughs> so obviously a duck, those are bills. That's a, that's, that's not ears. That's a, what are you stupid? You must not, you must not, you must not want to submit to the word of God. You must not just be as bright. Um, that's obviously a duck. And it wasn't until I really dropped, you know, this, this presuppositions that I had and, and I began to really try to understand the other perspective and see the rabbit the way they see it, because they're well-intending the, the people on the other side are, you got to, you got to drop the idea that they're not well-intending. You got to drop this idea that there's some ignorant theological enemy out there that I've got to, to berate on. And you got to start thinking, okay, how, how are my, how are my brothers and sisters in Christ seeing this verse? Because I, I know they, in, they intend well and they honestly see it different. They're not, 
differently than I do. And I need to understand that first. And I'm not really qualified to judge whether it's a duck or a rabbit until I understand both the duck and the rabbit in the text. And so I had to become more objective in my approach. And it was actually, ironically, it was debate uh, in high school. I went to just start taking debate in high school against my will somewhat. <laughs> so I, was, I was compelled to take debate. And, um, and, and, and it was a really good thing that I did because it really taught me to objectively take both sides of an issue on and try to defend both sides of the issue uh, in, in, a, in a rational and objective way. And I, I started doing that after about 10 years of being a Calvinist. I started doing that from the other perspective. And I really set out doing it, not to try to disprove Calvinism. I set out to do it to try to make me a stronger Calvinist and to be able to debunk the scholars from the other side. Um, and, and, and in the process, it actually uh, pulled me out of Calvinism versus uh, doing what I was originally intending to do. Yeah, that's a, uh, a great point. In fact, um, our other co-host, Jordan, he couldn't make it on for the interview, but he mentioned that as kind of being a question of, of he mentioned uh, that you, you said in the past that you started out to kind of uh, more prove your own viewpoint, but ended up kind of churning uh, from Calvinism to more of a provisionalist viewpoint just by trying to strengthen the Calvinist viewpoint that you held to at the time. What were a few of, of um, maybe the the top two or three things that really started to sway you? Because I mean, 10 years of having a theological viewpoint and someone who's in ministry and, and is in academia, obviously you're well-versed, you have a lot of knowledge, you know, you're, you're, you're taught how to study, you did debate teams. So it's not like, like you're just reading things on a very surface level and then just holding to kind of a, a bipartisan view or a partisan view of I'm going to always hold to this. So so what were some of the things that for you, maybe top three, that started to kind of change your view on going from point A to point B? Well, all I knew of the alternative was what my echo chamber of other Calvinistic scholars were telling me. You know, I knew, I knew it from hearing a friend of mine, Matt Chandler, who I grew up with, and we became a Calvinist about the same time under the same mentor there at Hardin wow. Simmons. And I, I, would, uh, I would hear, you know, he did a sermon more recently where he talks about the Arminian, the foresight faith Arminian, well, God looks into the quarters of time and he sees who's going to believe and that's the person he elects. And, and Matt, Matt jokingly says, it's like God gets into a DeLorean, travels into the future to see who's going to follow him. And those are the ones he elects. And, and this is the kind of fun we would have as Calvinists making fun of this seemingly just silly, mm. straw man kind of view of Wesleyan foresight faith Arminians. Uh, and that's, that honestly was what I thought was the alternative. I just thought that was the best they had to offer, and I was going, well, if the if 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 the off if the if the two choices in front of me are Calvinism, as described by John MacArthur and Piper and Sproul, the best of the best, is is in opposition to this straw man DeLorean kind of God, then yeah, I'm going to be one of the smart guys. I, I want to be one of these guys. But what I wasn't doing, I wasn't taking the time to get to know the A.W. Tozer's view, for example, or C.S. Lewis's view or some of the leading uh, deeper scholars from the non-Calvinistic worldview. I wasn't listening to the best of the other arguments. I had my own little echo chamber of other Calvinists telling me what Arminians believed, and I didn't read the original sources. And that is just, that's the mark of indoctrination and cult-like activity. And I'm not blaming Calvinists for being a cult. I'm just saying that's what, that's what leads to cult-like activity when you just put yourself surrounded by, you know, people who all agree with you instead of really objectively understanding the other person's worldview rightly and representing it rightly. And when I, when I tried, when I finally started doing that, I realized 
that the best and the strongest minds from the non-Calvinistic worldview held to more of a corporate view of election perspective, something I was really not even aware of, uh, then it made me go, oh, okay, so Calvinists haven't been representing the other side fairly, and therefore my my conclusions probably aren't real fair here. So I need, that that that, that was the first step for me kind of breaking it down, where I go, okay, I need to be more fair to the non-Calvinists here and understand their view. And even then I was still hardently a Calvinist. I was just saying, I was just thinking to myself, I really need to know what smart non-Calvinists think versus the kind of non-Calvinists that I had run into uh, in my own experiences, because most non-Calvinists I'd run into were falling right in line with the echo chamber and just saying things like, well, it's a mystery and whosoever will, whosoever will, John 3.16, and that's the only answers they had. And I said, well, what about Romans 9? And they go, well, that's a, I don't know. It's confusing. You know, I, I, and they just didn't have an answer. And so it was all, the, all of my experience was pointing me towards and funneling me towards uh, concluding that Calvinism must be the biblical, best biblical answer. And, uh, and my, my whole point in making the, the podcast and doing what I'm doing is just to help people to say, it's fine to learn Calvinists from the best Calvinist, but have you actually learned uh, the other side from the best scholars from the other side, or are you just listening to your own echo chamber? That was probably the first step in my process of decalvinizing, if you will. I yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, go ahead, Rob. I don't want to cut you off. I think one of the the main um, reasons that you come across with Calvinists and you ask, you know, why are you a Calvinist? I think um, one of the main reasons that we really come across is, well, what about the sovereignty of God? And uh, you can't, if, if we read in the scriptures about the sovereignty of God and a God that's all powerful and all knowing, how can you come to any other conclusion, but that he has ordained all things and that he has done all things according to his own will? Because if, if there's anything besides that, then we're undermining the sovereignty of God. And I, I know in your podcast, you did a review of John Lennox's book, Determined to Believe. And I know that you are- a, Which I'm a, reading. <laughs> I'm reading right now. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> I, I know you're, you're also a fan of that book and John Lennox in general. Um, but, and, and I, I think what, what the argument there is, like you have, have been saying, is the sovereignty of God is only set up in an echo chamber to be a certain thing. And it's really a misrepresentation. If we were to study what, what does the sovereignty of God actually mean? What, what um, scripturally speaking, can we define it in better terms to better equate with how the scripture looks at it on a whole? And I think that falls right in line with maybe your first step and others' first steps is, well, let's look at these terms and define them biblically, not by what we've, what we've come to believe or what one side says and defines it for the other side, but what, what is it really? Right. And Dr. David Allen, a friend of ours, that's on the program quite regularly, who's written a big old book on the doctrines of atonement from the traditional perspective, uh, the provisionist perspective. Um, he, he makes the statement quite regularly that, that uh, Calvinists have the same vocabulary, but a very different dictionary. Um, and so sometimes they'll use the exact same words that we use all the time, but they mean something very different. And so I, I love the word sovereignty personally. It, it's kind of weird that it doesn't even exist in the King James version of the Bible and only three right. times just even in the ESV, which is favored by Calvinists. And even huh. in those times, it's just a transliteration of the word Lord. So that didn't say Lord, Lord every time it would say sovereign Lord. Hmm. Uh, it, and, and 
it never in any lexicon, in any Bible dictionary, never will you find the word control for a definition of the word sovereign. It, mm-hmm. it just does not exist. And it's interesting you brought that up because in my book that I just, just released, um, I quote from a Reformed Baptist uh, uh, scholar from, I think he was from Southern Seminary, might be Reformed Theological Seminary, but he, he wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition's website, which is another Calvinistic source, mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about the word sovereignty not meaning what Calvinists think it means. <laughs> because they have flippantly used this word so often as kind of their catchphrase word for control. He was just putting out an article saying, guys, um, this is not the best way to use this because this is not what the word means. Uh, and he, he was still affirming that God is theistically, deterministically in control of all things, but he was just showing that that's not what the word sovereign means. And, and once you understand that um, the scriptures do teach that God is sovereign, I think a good definition of the word sovereign is Psalm 115.3, God sits in heavens and does whatever he pleases. Uh, you just can't assume that what God is pleased to do is to meticulously control the thoughts, actions, and deeds of men. Um, because later in that same chapter, verse 16, it says, but the heavenlies belong to the Lord. He has given the earth over to man. This is one of the reasons you just taught us to pray. Lord, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. A, a prayer that would seem somewhat superfluous if God's will is always done, meticulously done, exactly right how he's preordained it to be done here on earth. Um, but, but there are principalities and rulers of this dark world, as Galatians teaches us, and they are not being uh, controlled like some pawns uh, or some puppets or some robots or whatever analogy you would like to use there, which uh, indicates a deterministic uh, functionality where God is ultimately playing both sides of the chessboard in order to ensure his victory. I think that's a very low view of sovereignty. I think a higher view of sovereignty is to say that, that God could take on actual opponents. Uh, and because he's just so much better at chess than his opponents are, he's able to defeat them. Um, I think that's a higher view of sovereignty and a higher view of, of God as revealed in Scripture. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I also think about, you, you, you made a good point. Um, a lot of the things you said earlier about just um, uh, maybe things that growing, I grew up pretty on uh, a reformed ba- uh, Baptist household as well. My dad's pretty reformed. And so I would always wrestle with like, well, I feel like the reformed Calvinist has a better sense of a better knowledge of scripture, but, but then this other view I have that I want it to be where there's more of a free will Avenue. I can't, def- I can't defend well with scripture because my Calvinist friends know scripture so well, they kind of paint Romans nine in this certain light. And I would always come back to that in my head for so many years of like, well, I really hope that, that the reality is that people have a, some, you know, choice in the matter of being able to respond to the goodness of God and that God truly wills everyone to be saved. But then I come back to Romans nine in my head where I would just say, well, who are you? Oh man, to question God, you know? So it is interesting how, um, like you said, the the duck and the rabbit, I was also just kind of taught to see, especially for me, Romans 9 was a really big hurdle. I would always go back to that in my head of like, well, um, this might be true, but what, what about Romans 9? I can't get around it. It's pretty black and white. It's 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 right there in scripture. And being able to understand Romans 9, actually, I went through your commentary, uh, your two-hour commentary on your podcast a while ago. It was so helpful to un- to see a different way to read a passage of scripture that I think is very foundational to a Calvinist viewpoint. Right. And, and a lot of people, when they're first introduced to a perspective that they've never been introduced to before, um, their, their initial reaction is typically to think, oh, that seems far-fetched. 
when I was first introduced to Calvinism, it seemed a little far-fetched to me just because I, it hadn't been introduced to me. But once they walked me through the, their proof text, then, I, then it began to go, oh, well, that makes more sense. And it's obviously that's what the text is saying. So I need to adopt this worldview. And then as questions arise, then I look for how to answer that question, like why evangelize or uh, why is God not the author of sin if he's ultimately, uh, you know, determining or sovereignly determining all things that come to pass. And, and then I found those, the people who would give a sufficiently good sounding intelligent answer. And then that would help appease any of those feelings that I might've had of discomfort about the systematic, but it, it wasn't until, and it wasn't an emotional reason that I dismissed Calvinism. A lot of people will dismiss Calvinism because they think they're, you know, baby haters and, um, and they're, and, you know, paint, Calvinist in the worst possible light and use the worst possible vernacular to describe Calvinist to make them sound like this horrible, bad cult. I, I, I don't do that on my podcast. As you guys know, I, I'm, I'm, I believe John Piper and my other Calvinistic uh, friends are, are, are good brothers. I think they mean well. I just think they're misinterpreting some texts and, and I think they're misunderstanding some things. And so when I approach this, um, I try to approach it with respect to those who disagree, but w- with understanding if you have certain presuppositions when you go to Romans 9, sure, it sounds like it's supporting Calvinism. But if you just take out those presuppositions and show how those presuppositions were wrong, like I was trying to do in my debate with James White, showing that Israel is hardened because of their rebellious, not because, because of their own rebellion, their own choices to rebel, not because they were rejected by God before the foundation of the world or withheld some measure of grace or Christ didn't die for them or whatever thing you want to read into that from the systematic. Um, But instead, these are people who had grown self-righteous and they had grown hardened and blinded to the truthfulness of who God was to the point where God gave them over. He, like Pharaoh, he blinded them or hardened them in their already rebellious condition. And once you understand that presupposition, that alone takes the Calvinistic presupposition, the deterministic, sovereign deterministic ideas that God has selected who's going to save and and damn before the foundation of the world. It takes all of that completely out of Romans 9. Once you understand that he's addressing a group of people, i.e. Israel, who have grown hardened and calloused in self-righteousness, have become the old wineskin that can't take the new wine, and, and, and and that Paul's answering this question now, well, is God's promise then to Israel failed? If God's promise that through Israel, the nations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and this nation is rejecting their own Messiah, then has God's word failed? And Paul is attempting to explain and answer that question by taking them back through the history and quoting Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse, explaining how God's promise is being fulfilled, not, 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 uh, dis, not just um, in uh, Israel's, uh, life, but also in their rebellion. In other words, even by their acts of rebellion, God is fulfilling his purpose through Israel. And so God is perfectly just to show them mercy when it serves his purpose to show them mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy is a quote there from Exodus 32 and 33, mm-hmm. where he's explaining, they just built the golden calf. They deserve right then and there to be destroyed because of their rebellion, their idolatry. But God shows them mercy. That's the context of that quote. So what does that mean? Well, that means he effectually saves certain individuals from Israel who built the golden calf and not others? No, it means he, he chose not, he, he chose to refrain from punishing them and he showed to be, he in store, bore with great patience these objects that 
were objects of wrath. They deserved to be destroyed, but he bore with them with great patience. He was long suffering with them. He held out his hands to them all day long, like he says later in chapter 10. Um, he, he still is bearing with them. So this idea of mercy, mercy does never means in scripture, never means to effectually save somebody. Mercy means to refrain from punishing somebody who deserves to be punished. So when, the, when, when a Calvinist with this Calvinist lens on reads, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I will harden whom I will harden, what he hears in his mind is, I will effectually save whoever I want to effectually save. Right. Irresistible means. Or I will effectually harden who I'll effectually harden and condemn them to hell. And who are you to question whether I do that or not? That's what a Calvinist hears. And so that's why he says, what's a rabbit? I mean, I mean, it's ob- I mean, a duck. It's obviously a duck. It's plain and simple. Mercy, hardening, that means salvation or condemnation. Clear as day. But when you go back to the context of what Paul's quoting from, the mercy he's talking about is showing mercy to Israel, even though they deserve to be destroyed. He's, he's, having, he's showing patience to them in their rebellion so as to accomplish his promise. The very question he asks in verse 6, how is God's promise fulfilled through this nation? Well, here's how it's fulfilled. He shows them mercy when it serves his purpose. And guess what? He can also harden them when it serves his purpose. What's that mean? Well, just like he did to Pharaoh, he can give them over to their, their lust and to their pride and to their self-righteous rebellion. And they can be the very tools in the hands of God to cry out, crucify him in order to bring redemption for the world. And they can be the very tools that God uses to allow for the engrafting of the Gentiles. And who are you, O Jew, who has grown hardened and calloused in your self-righteous rebellion to talk back to me, God? That's the interlocutor in Romans 9. And when you understand that, Calvinism just just disappears. It's just, it, it's not needed. The, the whole difficult pill of God hating babies before they're ever born for no apparent reason, all of it's just gone. And once you realize that, you go, well, that's the beautiful rabbit there. Yes, <laughs> yes. A duck. I don't even, that duck is so hard to swallow. Why would I swallow a duck when obviously this, this expanding of God's love and grace is in, in view, full view here, not a, a narrowing of it. Why in the world would I want to swallow the, the difficult pill of double rep, uh, reprobation, this, uh, double predestination of reprobation of most of humanity before they're ever born? If I have a better alternative right there in front of me, that is so plain when you understand both sides. Yeah, that um, you really nailed, you know, listening to your podcast, even what you said now, it, it started for me giving myself permission to use some basic logic as well. Like what you said where, I mean, the idea of God predestining people and they had no choice to go to hell. How does that work in my head with God being a good, merciful God who wants to save all people? And of course, the typical line is, you know, quoting from, you know, you know, who, who are you, oh man? Or, well, the heart is deceitful, so you can't trust your heart. And a lot of those lines that I grew up believing really had a, I mean, for me, a very deep impact, even mentally of like, I can't trust myself. My heart's deceitful of all things, even though I'm saved, I'm still, I'm, I'm just, I'm totally depraved. You know, I, I want to do, I want to do uh, nothing good. Um, but even you explaining Romans 9, even in, in that five minute uh, monologue there, and, and, and even from your um, other episodes has given me personally permission almost to be like, well, now that I see it in this light, that makes so much more sense. Like I've always seen, I've always thought that, that, that how does this make sense? How can God be both good, merciful, and loving, but then also send some people to heaven and send some to hell for apparently on our end, no reason, no matter how much they want to believe they can't, unless God grants them some kind of special 
whatever, supernatural faith that they have no control over. And then he says in other parts of scripture that God desires all men to be saved. How can these things right. work? They can't. There has to be a way to, to get these things to work in harmony. And, and like you said, if you read the text a certain way, it's hard to fit those things together. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, the, and I just did a broadcast uh, critiquing John MacArthur in, in one of his answers because he pretty much just punts to mystery with, uh, we just can't understand how God's sovereignty and our responsibility work. We believe it's both true that God chooses certain individuals and loves them and gives them effectual grace. And it's also true that whosoever will believes and that God desires the salvation of all and he loves all people. And those are just uh, two friends that, that, that don't need to be reconciled. They're just true, already two friends. We'll say things like that. Or you'll hear some of them say, it's like two rails that meet in eternity. Yeah. You know, two parallel lines that meet in eternity. Well, okay. Well, that's just, that's just saying A equals not A. That's like saying it's a married bachelor, you know, um, right. you've got a married bachelor that are friends and you just say, okay, well, they're friends. They don't need to be reconciled. In other words, um, it, it's kind of like the emperor's new clothes uh, illustration. I've got an article on online about that where, you know, the whole, the whole story of the emperor's new clothes is that no one wants to say the emperor's naked when it's clear that his clothes, he doesn't have any clothes on. And it's, it's like the Calvinists just, they get to the point where they, they, they have so gaslighted, that means to, to make somebody feel really stupid if they disagree, they, they have so gaslighted anybody who disagrees with them that no one within their circles dare say, man, that just doesn't seem right that God would condemn people for factors that are completely beyond the control of the agent. Because intuitively, we know that's wrong. Right. We know it's wrong to condemn somebody for reasons and factors that are beyond their control. We just know it. We know we don't condemn somebody because they're black or because they're white or because they're Asian. Why? That's a factor beyond their control. We look at the content of their character. But if their character, the content of their character is no more within their control as the color of their skin, then what is the point of judgment? What is the point of, of praise and reward? What is the point of condemnation or, or salvation? If it's ultimately God just ultimately up there just saying, I'm going to deterministically cause this one to believe in me, but I'm going to deterministically allow this one to be born in a condition where they can't do anything but hate me. And I'm going to somehow be glorified in their condemnation. And who are you to question whether I do this or not? I'm sorry. That's just not what Paul was teaching. Uh, I'm thoroughly convinced that was not the intention of Paul in, in Romans chapter nine. And so was the first three to 400 years of the Christian church according to their writings. Um, well, it, it also doesn't seem to fit the narrative of the Bible big picture. The narrative of the Bible seems to be that God created things. It was good. It was very good. God created us to be in harmony with him. We fell. And then the, the love story of God, so to speak, is that he wants to reconcile all things back yep. to himself. That's what he wants to do. I, there, there doesn't seem to be a reason God wants to send people to hell. I don't think he ever designed things to be that way from the beginning. I think that hell is obviously a very real consequence of sin, and but I think that it was never designed for humans. So I think even that doesn't fit in the grand scheme of what the the narrative of the Bible on a very big picture would teach. In fact, Rob and I are very big fans of the Bible Project. We love their work. We love how they, uh, Tim Mackey, he's just really great with explaining just big picture concepts and what's happening. And, you know, he paints a really beautiful picture that God is in the business of reconciling us to the new humanity. That's what God wants. I don't think yeah. he takes pleasure in anyone going to hell, but in a Calvinist viewpoint, it almost seems like somehow God gets glory from that. And I, again, using just basic intuition, and like you said earlier, human logic, and, and we just know certain things. I don't know how God or why God would want to get glory from sending someone to hell forever with no way out. So, Right. Well, and th that's why I talk about in my first book, the, 
the Potter's Promise, where I talk about how God is glorified not in uh, sacrificing most of humanity for the sake of his glory, but instead by sacrificing himself for the sake of humanity, undeserving humanity at that. Right. Yeah. So it, God, it is, we, we, we can talk, I mean, as much about God's glory on our side as, as the Calvinists can on their side. Um, they've just kind of seemed to grab certain words like the word sovereignty and God's glory and, and kind of made it as if they have a monopoly on those words. Um, and and I, I always just like to push back and say, which is really a more glorious view of God? Um, the, the God I see represented through Jesus Christ on the cross is one who didn't pass by the other side of the road uh, of his enemies, leaving them. And that's exactly the ver- verbiage that Calvinists use with regard to the reprobate, the non-elect, that God passes by. Right. Oh, God, good. He's recognizably good. What do recognizably good people do? They provide for those in need. They stop and help the person on the side of the road. They, they, they give of themselves and they help those in need. They don't pass by on the other side of the road. Yet that's exactly what Calvinists say that God does with all of the reprobate, the non-elect of the world, that he just passes by and leaves them in their disheveled, uh, hopeless condition. And I, I, I'm sorry, I just I don't see that in the character of Christ. He's the one who is calling us to love our enemies, not just not just our neighbor, but to love our enemies. Well, what does God do to his enemies? Well, according to Calvinism, he ultimately chooses them for damnation before they're ever born or done anything good or bad um, and condemns them for factors beyond their control. Um, and, and, and it's supposed to be getting glory from this. I'm sorry, the emperor has no clothes. That, that is absolutely intuitively known. I think even deep down within them, they know there's something wrong with that. And, and, and Piper talks about this where he wept for three days when he was first introduced to Calvinism because uh, Calvin himself is call, calls us a dreadful decree. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other podcast guy, uh, what's his name? J.D. Hall or somebody, he's a Calvinistic guy that does a podcast. And he, he said, you, you, go, you go through stages of grief when you're first introduced to Calvinism. And you got to go, and he, he jokingly talked about these stages of grief you go through, but you eventually come to, to, to adopt it. Matt Chandler's uh, known on a podcast with Piper talking about this. And he said, you know, at first it was an itchy blanket you know, the sovereignty aspect, the inchy blanket, but eventually it became a warm and comfortable blanket. Um, over and over and over again, you, Sproul says something similar in his book too, about how, how he really struggled with this. Um, all of them, they, what are they struggling with? They're struggling with this intuitive knowledge of knowing there's something wrong with someone who condemns people for factors that are beyond their control before they're ever born, before they did anything good or bad, before any decision they made that he is ultimately deciding, I will not love this person. I will not provide for this person. I will uh, ultimately condemn them for reasons beyond their control. That we just know, we know it deep down and Calvinists that are listening to this, you know it deep down, you know it. That is not just, it's not right. And I think there's a better explanation in Scripture than what the Calvinists have to offer. Yeah, I I really like a, a man, um, Dr. David Gooding. Uh, he was a, a mentor to John Lennox, and he back in the yeah. '90s he gave a sermon, the a sermon series called "The Glorious Gospel of the Blessed God." I was and that last night. Oh, it's it's a great series. Um, I love that he works backwards, and he starts with the justice of God's judgments. And just goes through just the logic of, of how it works. And you cannot logically say, based on scripture, based on how justice must 
prevail that God can then condemn someone for something that they couldn't possibly do. And, you know, he goes through all the examples of, well, the, there's, if you pull over a man who's intoxicated and um, you, you're condemning him because he couldn't walk straight. Yes, but that was his choice to get drunk. And therefore, it is then his responsibility for not being able right. to walk straight. Which is a great illustration for the Jews because the reason they are, quote unquote, hardened, drunk, if you will, is because of their continuous rebellion against the things of God. They, if, the, if you continue to reject the things of God, eventually you'll grow blind and calloused and hardened to the things of God. But you're not born in that condition, just like the guy's not born drunk or, or you know, just doesn't wake up drunk for, for reasons beyond his control so that he starts driving cars and getting an accident. No, it's choices that he freely made that led up to a point where, yeah, he can't walk in a straight line, but those are, that's not a factor beyond his control. It was within his control as to whether to drink or not. So, yeah, that and that's that's intuitively what we know to be is just. Yep. And so to say that ultimately this guy is not only walking, can't walk in a straight line because of his drunkness, but he also didn't have any control of whether he became drunk or not. And that's ultimately what the Calvinist T of their tulip ultimately teaches, that you're born drunk. You're already born with this God-hating uh, nature that can't do anything but hate the, na- the, the things of God. And that's never established in Scripture as far as I can tell. Yeah. And then he, he goes through, and obviously, as you know, he, okay, then how is it that man is just so great and so powerful that we have decided, hey, God, why don't you come in and fix this for us? No, he, he goes into Christ as the revealer of God. We wouldn't be able to come to God unless Christ revealed God unto us. And so we we were often as those that are non-Calvinists are painted as, oh, well, you just think that we're so great, we could turn to God whenever we want. No, we can turn to God because he has revealed himself to us in the person of Christ. But just because he stretched out his hand in that way doesn't relieve us of any responsibility to respond to that revelation or to um, respond to that call in salvation. Well, and that's an important point that you make is the initiation of God through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. God initiates it all. Now, the question up for debate is not whether God initiates or not, because some, like you say, sometimes it's painted as if we believe we initiate our own salvation or we save ourselves or something like some nonsense yeah, like that. Crazy. And, and, and the, what the true point of contention is, and that's what you got to get back to debate. You got to always go, what is our point of contention? What is the, what is the point we're debating? We're not debating whether God initiates salvation or not. Okay. Well, he has. Right. The question is, is his work of initiation sufficient for us to, to be able to reply to it or not? And so because the Calvinistic worldview is not just saying that we're fallen, they're also saying that we're so fallen that even when God himself sends his Holy Spirit wrought call, called the gospel, the inspired truth of God's word, offering you a means of reconciliation, you cannot reply to it positively. You will hate even his offer to be reconciled from the fall. Why? Because you're fallen. And, and, and where is this found in Scripture? There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that you can't reply to the life-giving truth of God's Word. They will cobble together using false idioms like deadness to mm-hmm. say, well, oh, well, because you're born dead, uh, you're spiritually dead. Um, Ephesians 2, you're dead. And unless you're made alive, you'll always reject the things of God. And I always have to point people back to the first century idiom of, of deadness does not ever mean a moral incapacity to respond to God's life-giving truth. Um, he calls the church in Sardis dead. 
does that mean church in Sardis can't recognize their rebellion and repent and, and, and come back to their first love as he calls them to? Of course not. Um, uh, he even says uh, in, in Romans chapter 6 that we as Christians are to be dead to sin. Does that mean we as Christians can never sin? I wish, but unfortunately, I, I still do sin. Because being dead doesn't mean to be morally incapable of doing the thing you're dead to. Being dead means to be separate from it. Just like the prodigal son was said to be dead, but now he's uh, uh, alive. Lost, now he's found. The idiomatic use of deadness is to be separated from God because of rebellion. It has nothing to do with some ontological reality from birth making you morally incapable of responding to God's appeals and God's call to be reconciled. Um, And that's what makes the Calvinistic worldview, I think, just untenable and unworkable because it ultimately makes God out to be a God who judges people for factors that are beyond their control. This inborn nature that makes them incapable of even responding to God's loving appeals to be reconciled from that fallen condition. Leighton, I want to ask you a question. So if we had, um, I I believe you had a big conversation with uh, James Martin a few episodes ago on your podcast. That's not familiar. And I I listened to that whole thing. He was honestly, it was was actually one of my favorite episodes you've done because it was great to have a, or kind of listen in around around almost a coffee table scenario of you guys talking. But um, it seemed like, you know, if we had James here, do you feel like, like he would say that you're fairly representing a Calvinistic viewpoint? And here's why I say that. I feel as if whenever you, bring what you, how, uh, whenever you bring up what you're saying, and you say it very bluntly, which I appreciate, you kind of just call it for what it is, people on the Calvin, uh, Calvinism side tend to say, well, it's not, that's not exactly how, what, what, what we're talking about. Like, like kind of what you said earlier, where it's the same words, but really different definitions. But ultimately, if you take these thoughts to, the, to their logical conclusion, that's where you end up is what you're talking about. But I remember James in particular, a lot of times would try and say things like, well, no, like I'm not saying that. But when you really press them, you kind of have to admit that is what he's saying. So do you feel like, 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 like he would agree that even now what you're saying is a fair representation of Calvinism? Well, I think James is a fair enough minded guy that he recognizes there's different kinds of Calvinists. And he was one very quick to condemn certain other types of Calvinists that are out there, like the guys we debated in Houston. He, he distanced them. Oh, uh, really quick. That, I watched that. I watched that. And that was like a jaw dropper. When the guy wouldn't even call you a brother, I'm like, oh, heavens, like this is something else. So that and was crazy. Are hard determinist. Uh, James might even call them hyper kind of Calvinist. Um, and, and, and there, there's, there, here's a key point. Calvinism is not a monolithic group, meaning they're, they're not all cut from the same cloth. They don't all hold the same views. Um, what, what makes a Calvinist a Calvinist is this probably this one key thing, is that ultimately God is the decisive cause of if you will believe in Jesus or not. Okay? In other words, God decides what you will decide with regard to whether you follow Jesus. That's Calvinism in the basic, most reduced form of the soteriological issues. Now, John Calvin obviously taught a bunch of different other things, some of which Baptists would agree with and some of which Baptists typically, Southern Baptists would not agree with. But when it comes to the soteriological issue called Calvinism, and this is from Piper, matter of fact, he says the one main key that really separates Calvinists from the rest is this decisive cause issue. Who is the decisive cause of your faith, of whether you trust and believe in God or not? Um, and I agree with that estimation. That is a great a single point that you can really focus on. And, um, and, and, it, and if it's ultimately God's, God is the decisive cause as, as to whether you will trust and believe in him, the gospel, when you, when you are presented with it, 
then, then you have all kinds of other implications that sometimes Calvinists themselves will deny. But my argument is, well, I don't think you can logically deny that claim at the same time making this claim. And that's where I think James was being illogical in some of his conclusions. He was saying things that were completely illogical with the claims of other things he had said previously. And he even admitted uh, he was calling himself a, a refusalist or something like that because he was trying to denounce himself or separate himself from classical or, or Calvinism while at the same time saying, I'm a Calvinist and, def- and defending their interpretation of certain you know, classical proof text as a Calvinist would do it. And so I, I just was trying to, one by one, show him where those passages don't need to be interpreted as to support the Calvinistic interpretation. So there's no need for you to wrangle uh, your philosophy and your theology to make it fit if these verses don't say what the traditional, uh, you know, Calvinistic interpretation is saying. And yeah, that's that's when it gets like a, a fishing line that that's hard to untangle because you've got people trying to have their cake and eat it too, theologically in the sense of saying, um, you know, I, I, I do believe you have free will. Uh, and you'll hear Calvinists often I do believe you have free will. And then you'll say, okay, what do you mean by free will? Right. Well, and then they'll explain it as something that sounds exactly the opposite of what free will is, which is ultimately God determines your nature and you will always choose according to your nature. Um, and God determines your circumstances and you will always choose exactly what he has decreed for you to choose in those given circumstances that he has also sovereignly decreed. And so you pretty much just have a reworking of hard determinism uh, with a flowery decoration of what they call compatibilism. Um, and and I've, I've gone over this on hundreds of episodes, obviously, with, with Calvinists, some of which you take one position, some of which you take another, some who are super lapsarians and some who are sub-lapsarian, some of infralapsarian. And, and so I, I've come to the conclusion it is impossible to rightly represent the, the, the position of your opponent to the satisfaction of every one of those opponents. And so whatever Calvinist, I could be quoting from Calvin himself, right. he may not represent that form of Calvinism for that person who's listening to that particular episode. And so they say, oh, well, Leighton just doesn't understand Calvinism. Right. Well, okay, no, Leighton's representing a form of Calvinism that you don't adhere to, but it doesn't mean I don't understand Calvinism. Hmm. I am actually talking about this form of Calvinism as represented by maybe by John Calvin or by John Piper or by John MacArthur or by R.C. Sproul, all of which every one of those people I named have differences in the way they explain certain aspects of tulip theology. And so it, it's, it's next to impossible to completely and rightly represent every opponent. But I, I do, I'll say this, and maybe this is, sounds biased. I promise I do a lot better job representing Calvinists than they do representing provisionists or traditionalists. Because I have yet to see a notable, when I say notable, one of the big name guys that have published works out there represent a, a non-Calvinist in a way that I or other scholarly non-Calvinists would appreciate or agree with. Like I said, the DeLorean comment from Matt Chandler, that's the, that's the level that they're treating our best scholars. And yet for me, when I'm doing it, I play John Piper almost fully, almost completely in his, in his sermons or MacArthur or, and I, and I put a link to their show notes and, and I show them respect and I show them a uh, love when I do that. How many Calvinists are doing that for us on the other side? Be, be objective. Go look and find a podcast where Calvinists are playing us for ourselves and representing our, uh, us with respect. And, and, and you, you, 
you'd be hard pressed to find one, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I actually, I wanted to bring this up as kind of moving on to some other topics here. Um, I've noticed that, and something that again drew me to your podcast was, I I felt as if you were you are always extremely respectful of the other side. You always tend to overstate. I'm not angry. I'm not trying to get them in a corner. I'm not trying to call that call them out as like being heretics. I'm not trying to you know I'm just I'm just I'm just coming against their viewpoint, but not them as people. And I've noticed that about about how you talk. You tended to do that a lot. And I've tended to notice on the other side, I think of like Apologia Radio, for example, um, the guys obviously on uh, in, down in, uh, uh, during that debate, which are maybe more of like an anomaly. I, I wouldn't say that by and large, that's how most Calvinists act, you know. But yeah. it does seem that from what I, I hear in that world, it's not always reciprocated, meaning it feels like um, the word heretic gets thrown around a lot more on the Calvinist side, where if you don't believe these certain things, you're really floating or floating more with like a heresy kind of view where you're more of like, hey, I'm not I'm not going to say that Calvinism is a, her- is a heresy. I'm just trying to say that that there are other ways to view these scriptures. I'm just trying to have a dialogue. Uh, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, on the Internet. Uh, in yeah. other words, I think if you're if you're judging from internet Calvinists, yeah, because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. They're the most notable, most Calvinists, most guys that are like the James Martin that you mentioned earlier. These guys are busy doing evangelism. These mm-hmm. like Matt Chandler. I mean, Matt yeah. Chandler doesn't want to talk about Calvinism. I mean, right. he's out there evangelizing and win, winning people and growing a church and doing great work and great ministry. I love his work. I love definitely. His work. Love this stuff, Piper too. I mean, all these guys—they don't sit around and just talk about this stuff. Okay, occasionally, obviously, they preach on it and write books about it and stuff. But um, it's just like in my life. I, I mean, I know it seems like it for those that only know me from this podcast that this is all I do. But this is not. This is not really all that much of my life. And so I, 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 I feel like sometimes because my best friend's a Calvinist. Um, his name's Jason. I mean, he and I. A joke with each other and we and, and, and uh, Dylan Manley is a good friend of mine who's down in uh, Waco is a Calvinist um, he and I are good friends and we joke about this kind of stuff and these these guys are nothing like some of these Calvinists that you mentioned nothing like that um, they're a lot more like James Martin and just this loving kind of a guy that loves the Lord and wants to witness to people but they just I think they have hold to some inconsistencies and misinterpretations right. and they think the same thing about me right. we're to work together and minister together. But the, one of the things you mentioned there, Tim, is you, you said that late you, you feel, I, I feel like I always hear you saying this over and over and over again. And the reason that is, is because every time I get on Twitter or every time I get on Facebook or every time I get any place, I see accusation after accusation after accusation of Leighton, flowers being this raging anti-Calvinist sovereignty hater (laughs) attacking us Calvinist and is just totally misrepresenting us and straw manning us. And he's just, he's just attacking the, 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 the doctrines of God's grace and just, and, and, and I'm like, are you, do you watch the program? (laughs) How, how much freaking nicer do I have to be? Do I have to be? Before you'll, are you hearing the second hand from somebody right. or a third hand? I, I don't, I don't get it. It just, it, it baffles me. So that I probably overkill um, Jonathan Pritchett, Dr. Pritchett from Trinity. He's a little bit more rough around the edges. If you haven't noticed, he's a little bit more uh, like blunt than I am about stuff. Um, and, and he gets on to me sometimes, me and Braxton Hunter, because we're both so cordial and, 
in our discussions. And he's just like, oh, just stop that, you know. <laughs> just, just, come to, just come at him. Just call it what it is, you know. Just say yeah. what it is, you know, whatever. And, and I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I guess maybe there's part of me that, that does want I, – I, I don't – I used to be a Calvinist, and so I, I knew I, – I remember what it feels like uh, to, to, to think about the non-Calvinist. And I remember what I used to think about Arminians when I was a Calvinist. And I remember how I thought about them. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of Armenian friends that I had in school that I probably should call and apologize to. But um, I remember thinking how stupid they were. I know that's, I know that's mean, but I remember thinking, man, those guys, you know, bless their heart. They, <laughs> they just don't know anything about the Bible. And they are just, they're emotional and they're, they're feminine, you know, and their approaches. And they're just, uh, they're a Joel Olstein-like, kind of like, you, think, you know, just, they like this chicken soup for the soul kind of Christianity. Yes. They don't, they don't really understand the wrath aspect of God and they don't teach the whole counsel of God's word. I remember thinking that about Arminians, hmm. even though I, didn't, I may not have even known them, right. I may not have known what they knew. I, I, I just, but I, that's what I thought about them. And there's a part of me that thinks there are people out there who think like, of me like that. Yeah. And I got to kind of cringe. I go, Oh, I don't want to be thought of like that. And so I feel like I have to uh, defend my, myself from my, my former Calvinist. You know. Well, it, it's also very, it's also refreshing. I mean, you know, we live in a very polarizing time culturally, politically, you know, racially, there's a lot of um, bullet points and these, these topics are not bullet point topics. You can't just have a bumper sticker slogan that mm. encompasses the whole conversation. Right. And the internet, I think it's a whole different podcast topic, but obviously people do not usually talk the same way in person as they do behind a keyboard. Uh, even when, even when you posted the email I sent you on your page, I went through some of the comments. I'm like, wow, some of these are just brutal. I mean, it's just how it is, you know? Um, and I, I think that your conversation with, uh, with James Martin was so needed because here's two people who are probably great friends who probably have inside jokes and text about dumb things and whatever, but also can disagree on something and have a really helpful iron sharpening iron conversation where it's like, well, listen, here's my view. Here's your view. Let's kind of, let's take the views and kind of put them in the arena of, of, uh, 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 you know, of like battling and let's see what kind of what happens as friends, you know? And I, I appreciate that about you because, um, I think culturally, especially in the church, I think that we overlook the calling of Christ that, that, that the church would be unified way too easily. We are way too quick to divide over denominational view or views about whatever, Calvinism, you know, um, or whatever. How do you think we can continue to build bridges in the church? Because I think if there's something, if, if I had to put for me like um, a flag on some mountain, I would put it on the mountain of unity. How do we unify the church um, in America? Because I think we're so much better together, but it seems like we're, we're almost more divided than ever um, between, you know, um, word of faith movement and this movement and that movement and this, you know, we throw around the word heresy like it's, like it's just some kind of normal word. We, we, we treat, you know, a lot of people throw it out like if, if I don't, if you don't believe what I believe, heretic, you know, we, we just overuse these crazy words. How do you see this kind of discussion unifying the church? How do you build bridges with, with, with Calvinists or other people who might disagree with you? Well, this is something I had to learn even in my marriage, um, just kind of insight into my, my, my life as a husband, um, is I, I am an avoider. I, I, I avoid difficult topics. You can ask my wife about that. So if, if, I, if I, I would rather just appease 
um, and, and make her happy and just, and not, and even though I may be suppressing some feelings, I would just kind of not say it because I don't want to get into a debate about it. And, you know, I, I could either choose to be right or to be happy, kind of one of those things, you know what I mean? And so, um, and so I, I would, I just, I would bury um, my, my feelings about a particular topic in order to unify. Now, anybody who's in psychology or anybody who knows anything about counseling, which my wife is a therapist, and so <laughs> they know this is Great. a recipe for disaster. This is going to cause divorce. This is going to cause a split. When people are not expressing what they truly believe and truly feel in a healthy way with respect to the other person, then you are, you are at a seedbed of disunity. That's true of the church. It's true in a marriage. It's true in anywhere. And so, so this concept or idea that in order to be unified, then you don't need to talk about what you differ with your brother about. That is a false narrative. And it is absolutely destructive to the church. And so there's a lot of people, I'll get messages like this occasionally that say, Leighton, stop talking about Calvinism because you're disunifying the church. You're causing disunity in the church. No, brother, brother, this disunity already exists because there are people who disagree about this. I am trying to model how to disagree without being overly disagreeable. And I'm trying to express and give voice to an other side of the issue in a respectful and helpful manner. That's, that's, to, that, that's to help keep from splitting, not the other way around. I'm not causing a split by talking about our differences. I'm bringing clarity to why we disagree with you as a Calvinist. And I'm doing so while respecting you as a Calvinist. That's what I would have to do with my wife. I love my wife. I respect my wife. She loves me. She respects me. And if I can learn to communicate my differences with her while still showing her love and respect as a human being and valuing her opinions and her views, then I, I have hope of saving my marriage and my relationship with her and making it healthy. The same is true between non-Calvinists and Calvinists within the body of Christ. If we can't learn to communicate with each other in a healthy environment in a healthy way with respect to each other, then we will inevitably divide and split over this issue, inevitably. And so this whole concept or idea that unity comes from silence or burying what you think about something or just not talking about it or another pet peeve of mine, oh, why don't you go witness to somebody instead of talking about Calvinism? My life has been about witnessing to other people and teaching people how to witness to other people. Thank you very much. Mm. But guess what? I can walk and chew gum at the same time. And when you give up Sports Center, it's amazing how much more time in your life that you can put to a podcast for a couple of hours each week. So get off your freaking high horse and stop telling me that it's wrong for me to focus on the most important doctrine called soteriology. Because as C.S. Lewis says, if, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. If it's true, it's of most importance. But the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I'm just here to say, if Christianity is true, which we believe it is, then what more important doctrine is there in the world than the doctrine of our salvation and the character of our God? So I'm sorry, I, 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 I'm a little bit on my soapbox on this one, because I hear too much of people ridiculing or criticizing me for talking about the doctrine of our freaking salvation mm. while they're over there debating the scores of the March Madness crap. I'm not yeah. going, what's really manly? What's really godly? in all of our discussions, how many times they can put a freaking orange ball in a hoop or about the salvation and the soul and the character of God's goodness and grace and provision for all people. I'm sorry. I, I usually don't even get that mo emotional in my own hey, heart, but, uh, you, know, you, have a beard, you have a beard and you have those tattoos and it's just getting <laughs> fired up. You look like a Calvinist. Uh, 
I want to use my beer, you know, my craft beer or something like that. You'd you'd fit right in the Calvinist, man. Come on. Uh, Yeah, you know, for me, I watch too much of The Office. My wife and I, that's our show. So it's amazing. Yeah, I love The Office. Yeah, Yeah. we're huge fans. So when you cut, it's amazing when you cut out Netflix, you know, how much time you have. Exactly. Um, But you bring up, I think, I think you bring up a very essential point, and that is that um, it's okay to disagree and you can still be family. You know, me and my, I, I work with my family. We work in, the, in a business together in construction and it is not easy working with mom, dad, and the brother all the time. But even in our disagreements, we can still come together, run a business, and sometimes their opinion or their view actually changed my view a little bit. And I go, wow, I never thought about it like that. Yep. And I think you're right where, again, I think that we have, as a church culture, We've, we've mirrored American culture too much in the sense of we just get so the – way, the way we handle conflict is so unhealthy. Like you said, people you know, behind a keyboard calling someone out. There's no dialogue. There's no conversation. There's no positive intent. Right? The intent just seems to be negative. How can I tear someone down? But right. like you said, you know, you're, you're friends with, with Matt Chandler and all those guys. And I'm sure you, there's a huge respect on both sides. And I'm, I'm sure as well, there are conversations that both probably you, you both leave saying, huh, that's some good things for me to think about. I need to really consider this. And right. that's how the church is built up. It's not, it's not that we have to reunite under, under a Catholic model, but <laughs> before the reformation and have, and have an, an ultimate hierarchy going on, but it's that there can be mutual respect and love because we know that ultimately Jesus died, resurrected for our sins, you know, according to the scriptures, the gospel's intact. The goal is to love people and get them to turn to Christ because he's the only hope for humanity. If we can get behind that, we can do a lot of good. Absolutely. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with that statement. That's for sure. And, and I, I do believe that the church can benefit from having these kinds of discussions. Um, as you said, the iron sharpens iron even through disagreement. Paul, Paul and Peter obviously disagreed yep. uh, with the, within the Jerusalem Council issue and, and, and the Judaizing issues. They had points of disagreement. And, and so there's nothing unbiblical or uh, scary about brothers and sisters disagreeing with each other over doctrinal matters. Um, um, God's obviously allowed us to have the free will to make decisions that sometimes are wrong. And that's why we have uh, variants uh, in, our, in our theological worldviews. Um, and, and I think our, our perspective better explains those things. Otherwise, you've got God ultimately determining for some of his children to believe right doctrine and some of his children to believe wrong doctrine, which doesn't right. to me. The, right. the whole libertarian free will gives a good theodicy problem of evil. It also gives it a good explanation for various denominations and various theological views. And so that's one of the reasons I continue to bring a defense of provisionism, because one, I think it really does bring a defense of God's holiness, his character, his goodness, and his provision for all people. Um, and as you mentioned earlier in the show, you know, with, uh, with the Joe Rogan uh, interview, um, there are some people, unfortunately, who take a, a, a Calvinistic approach to the text as as a reason for their rejection of Christianity altogether. And and if no other reason, even as Piper admitted on one of his broadcasts, I'd much rather you be a, a Christian who affirms an Arminian theology than than to reject God altogether because you just can't swallow Calvinism. He even even he said that. Um, and so I, I I would I would say the same thing is that there must be, I think, some strong theological answers from our perspective to say there are good reasons to believe uh, in, in uh, a provisionist soteriology, and there are good reasons to understand uh, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and some of these other proof texts from, from our side as well. 
Well, I just want to encourage you in your work because uh, you're the only voice I know on a, on a larger platform who can really well articulate and explain just a very different view of things that a lot of people, you know, I'm 30, a lot of people in my generation grew up believing that have walked away from the faith because they haven't taught some of this stuff, you know? And um, so I, I think the work you're doing is, is really essential because I think over the history of the Reformation of the Protestant movement, the Protestant movement has been built on the idea of always reforming, always thinking through, always looking at scripture in a new light, always trying to figure out what the text is really saying. And I'm, um, my concern is that I think we're in a place, well, I'm sure it's happened historically, but obviously I'm alive now. So what I'm seeing happen now is um, there's seems to be a movement of we're all done reforming. No reason to rethink some of this stuff. It's, it's set in stone. No reason to rethink it. If you do, you're, you're really, you're really, you know, flirting with danger here. And, and the Christian faith is a very wide, it's a very wide river. A lot of people in the faith have come and gone with very different viewpoints on a lot of these subjects. So I would still consider in the faith. And I think it's important for us to realize that. Well, and, and since you brought up the Reformation, um, I, I put out an article usually that I try to reblog almost every time it comes to back down to Reformation Day. Because again, like the word sovereignty, like the word glory, uh, it seems like Calvinists have kind of grabbed onto a word and made it their own. They're really good at doing that. Um, and and re- reformed is another one of those words. Uh, and, and it needs to be noted, I think, historically, Roger Olson, who I'm actually interviewing tomorrow for a podcast, uh, he, he has an article on this that I really, that I, I quote from as well, where he talks about how it's just become this misnomer that everybody who let out in the Reformation and uh, the ills of the Catholic Church believe so theologically like John Calvin did. That's just factually incorrect. Uh, in fact, Philip Melanchthon, who was the Greek scholar uh, at Wittenberg with uh, Luther, who Luther himself admits is the greater of the two scholars, um, uh, Philip Melanchthon interprets Romans 9 more like I do than like John Calvin does. Uh, and, and he uh, comes to conclusions. I don't agree with every, all of his conclusions about everything, obviously, but he comes to more of a provisionist type of conclusions with regard uh, to uh, um, sociology. Uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer, uh, long before uh, um, Calvin entered the scene, was fighting against the, the ills and false teachings of the Catholic Church. He ended up being uh, ultimately under Zwingli's rule, uh, being uh, killed, thrown into the river and killed, um, or he was burned at the stake. I think his wife had a millstone tied around her neck and thrown into the river nice. because she taught, uh, they taught believers baptism. Um, and Balthazar Hubmeyer believed sociologically like we do. Uh, and so just this, this idea that, and here's, here's a statement, some Calvinists may not like this, but Calvinists tend to be men, male, I mean, more so than women, um, Calvinists tend to be uh, determinists. They're drawn to people who hold to a deterministic worldview tend to be rougher, gruffer, hardcore type guys um, that, that just draws a certain kind of intellectual rigor about them. Uh, Piper even talks about this in one of his broadcasts titled Why Are Calvinists So Mean? And he just he even talks about how those who are drawn to this kind of systematic tend to be a little rough around the edges sometimes. Well, if you think back to the Inquisition times and the times where they're burning people at the stake, um, and I'm not trying to be mean, but the people who are more uh, lovey-dovey kinds that lo- love, God loves everybody, they they're tended to be the ones that were burned at the stake. And the people doing the burning uh, and the, the burning of the books tended to be the rougher, gruffer guys. 
And so you look through back through history and you think, why has Calvinism been so predominant since Augustine? Well, because they're the ones who are the gruffer, rougher types, the hyper kind of guys, the, the ram kind of guys that we talked about. They're the kind of guys that are going to gather up a posse and burn you at the stake if you disagree with them. And, they also and, seem to be a little more, um, and again, we're, we're, we're generalizing, but it's not every Calvinist out there, oh, but um, they also seem to be a little more black and white, like naturally. I'm a very black and white person. I like, oh, just read me the text. That's what it says. Good. I don't need an explanation. It's black and white. That's it. Right so, or wrong. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's the way I think when you look over the history of it, you've got, you've got people like um, Calvin who... Uh, it has some questionable ethics with regard to how you treat heretics and burning people to stink. Where, whereas you got Hubmeyer who said, we, we, even the heretics, even, even the atheists out there, even people who don't believe in God, we should show them as, at least as much mercy as Christ would. Um, we, should, we should be patient with them. God was patient with Israel for so long. Why wouldn't we be patient with these people? Whereas Luther and others were condoning their, their being burned at the stake. And so it, it, was, it was the provisionists, the traditionalists of the Reformation who were actually uh, vying for being loving and, and, and having, uh, you know, liberty, if you will, with regard to your religious liberties and separating uh, church from state in that sense of saying, hey, we don't, we don't need to take on the, the ills of Rome by killing people who disagree with us. Um, it, it was our side in the Reformation, I should say, sociologically, who were defending uh, patience and love and, and kindness and Christian virtues that we hold to very dear to us today. And so, I, I think we should reclaim the term reformed as being uh, the reformers like Melanchthon and, and like um, uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer, who held to a sociology like us, but also promoted Christian liberty as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate even from your story and, and others like you that there is, there is and always should be in all of our lives a sincere desire to reevaluate okay, is what I'm holding to, is what I've been taught, is what I've been reading, is that in line with what's revealed about God in Scripture? Is that what Christ has revealed of himself? And if it's not, am, am I too prideful or am I humble enough to submit to, hey, maybe the Spirit's trying to teach me something? And, you know, I, I can say that and point that at Calvinists to say, well, you should, you should be humbling yourself, but I should... Uh, and then turn the finger around and point it to myself. Are there areas in my life, some beliefs or some doctrines that I hold that maybe could use a little correction, could use a little adjustment? And, and am I open and receptive and humble enough to allow that to happen? Oh, what? Rob, Rob, I have several things that I could, <laughs> I could give you for you to go ahead and rethink. <laughs> well, and, that's, and I think that's the heart of the Reformation is to be reformed and ever reforming to, to the truth of the Word of God, uh, even if that pushes us out of our comfort zone. Um, and, I, and I think that's important for us to be uh, willing to reexamine our, our beliefs. And, and I've noticed since I came out of Calvinism, and, and recognized how much damage I had done, uh, at least if I was wrong, and I, assumably I was, obviously, from this vantage point, um, then it made me a lot more humble to recognize maybe there's some other things I'm wrong about still. And, and it makes me more uh, willing to openly uh, read the Word of God and, and allow the Spirit to teach me mm -hmm. um, with regard to, you know, maybe the other, other divisive issues or questionable issues like the speaking of, uh, in tongues or... You know, you may have a really strong view on eschatology or a strong view on 
you know, ecclesiology or something. But once you go through something like this and you're humbled to the point where you go, okay, I, I was shown to be wrong, really, really wrong about something. Um, maybe I shouldn't be so dogmatic in the future about uh, other questionable secondary doctrines and, and therefore show a little bit of patience and love towards those who disagree with me. Uh, I recently did a, a debate with Chris Date on the Unbelievable program with Justin Brierley as our moderator, who did a wonderful job moderating, by the way. And, and Chris is a, a, a friend and a brother and a, a, a gentleman and a scholar that I really have a lot of respect for. And on my Twitter page, um, James White chimed in about the debate and said he's looking forward to critiquing uh, my, my approach on, on the dividing line on, uh, in the future which I'm sure will be completely objective. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, but immediately, um, one of James White's followers uh, and listeners chimed in and said, oh, you got, you got to be careful that Chris Date guy. He believes in all kinds of weird stuff and starts listing all this stuff. And, oh, you shouldn't give him a platform and, and just begins to blast him. And, and immediately, I'm just going, what kind of pharisaical elitism is this where – Chris, who is a loving, scholarly, good brother, who happens to be Calvinistic, he believes in theistic determinism. I think he's wrong there. But why in the world do, do you do you need to blast him? And even James White came to his defense and saying, "I'm not. I'm, I'm simply critiquing this particular debate. I'm not advocating everything that that guy uh, stands for." And his friendship with Michael Brown, for example, and stuff, and people blast him because he he how, how dare he have a friendship with Michael Brown? because Michael Brown tends to be more on the charismatic side. This, this family that we call the body of Christ has differences of opinion because we have free will. And, it's, and it has a balance that we, sh we need to learn to love each other and learn from each other, not throw each other out of the kingdom as, as quote unquote heretics every time somebody steps over this little small circle that you've drawn so tightly around yourself that you barely fit in yourself. Yeah. Um, they end up eating their own and they end up... Um, you know, turning against their own because their 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 mindset is not uh, a love and forgiveness and patience, but more about control, more about um, uh, uh, being right, winning arguments versus winning relationships, and and I think that's detrimental to the body of God. Hold on, one, one second, Tim. Go ahead, Rob. Um, it's funny because we, we look at maybe denominations or a church like Westboro Baptist, and we say, well, that is definitely not the way that you're supposed to win people to Christ by going to funerals and holding up signs and telling people how awful and that they're, they're so terrible. And we can, we can, as a total body, we can look at that and say, that is not the way to evangelize. But then once you get in the church, once you're, you're kind of in the circles, then you can do that to fellow to believers, and it's not a problem. Um, but I, I think we, we have ourselves a, a double standard where if that's what we're supposed to be doing to evangelize, we care about these individuals, we build relationships, we, you know, the old adage, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And how much truer should it be of those within the faith? Isn't that in the scriptures, love all people, especially those in the household of faith. And so right. we, we really should have that same mentality of evangelizing, whether it's outside of the church or inside of the church, and have that mentality of, I'm going to love first, I'm going to respect and honor first, and after that, we can come back and, and discuss these things in light of that relationship first. Right. 
Well, not only that, but it's practical. It works. Um, it, you know, Proverbs sixteen twenty one says, "Sweetness of speech incre- increases persuasiveness." What's that mean? It's kind of like the like the adage says, you know, you win more flies with honey than vinegar. Yep. Um, it works. You're, you're better at persuading people to come to your view when you're kind. That's just intuitively known. We just know that to be the case. And the Bible actually says it too. Um, so why wouldn't we treat um, our non-Calvinistic or Calvinistic, whichever side you're on, our opponent in this particular sociological worldview, why wouldn't we treat them with love and respect if we hope to persuade them by our arguments? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, it's another reason I think that our worldview makes more sense in these kinds of discussions because I am actually trying to persuade them using logic and reason, uh, sound arguments, um, because I believe that I can influence their will to change. Uh, whereas if theistic determinism is true, then ultimately I can do all of the persuasive argumentation I want to uh, to cause them to reason. But unless God has deterministically decided for them to decide to accept this worldview or that worldview, they're not going to. Right. And so uh, that, that makes uh, even rational discussion a little bit hard uh, to, to defend as, as being truly rational as, and debate itself as being really rational. All right. Yeah, um, I, I think it sums up just being humble. I think humility is a huge piece. You talk about it a lot, and in, in even how someone comes to Christ is by humbling, uh, <laughs> humbling themselves. So, hey, I want to ask you one more question, and then we'll let you go. And I appreciate the time. You've been incredibly gracious, so thank you for coming on. Um, this question, I'm not asking about the people who I would we would say are Calvinists, more about the idea, ideological view of Calvinism. Do you think – and you know, I, you don't have to answer this, but do you think that Calvinism, as an ideological or doctrinal or theological view, has done more harm than good over the long haul? Not the people, but like the viewpoint of, you know, you really don't have a choice in the matter, so to speak. Do you think that that has been healthy for the church over the couple hundred years? Any false doctrine, or any false teaching, is is doing harm by the nature of it being false. And so if we assume for the sake of this discussion um, that Calvinism is false, which we presume that it is based upon our arguments and things of that nature. So let's step into that world. Let's assume Calvinism is false. We know it's false, absolutely false. Well, then, yes, it's done uh, innumerable amount of damage, uh, countless amount of damage uh, in splitting churches and causing people to possibly lose, lose their faith or leave their faith or not to ever come to faith because of, of the false view of God and his character and, and how God works. Um, and, and that's not just us saying that. We actually have Megan Phelps and others uh, on recording saying that they've rejected Christianity because of these claims. So it's not just uh, just saying that generally. Um, and, and you think about the countless amounts of hours and, and discussions and things that, that have, have had to been spent on correcting this error if indeed it's false. Um, and so all of those things are, are detrimental to the Christian faith. And in my own testimony, I talk about this, where um, my own worldview, my own beliefs about who I am and why I'm doubting my own salvation. Maybe God really didn't elect me if I'm dealing with this addiction or this issue. Maybe God doesn't really love me uh, because obviously he's the one who's deciding my nature. And if my nature is not being perfected and sanctified in the way that it should, maybe, maybe it's because I haven't been elected. And so it can cause people to doubt their salvation. It can cause people to feel uh, kind of become fatalistic or anti-evangelistic because they figure, well, if God has ordained the ends, he'll ordain the means. And if I'm not the means, it must be because God hadn't ordained it. And they, they put on to God a responsibility that he has actually put onto us. Uh, and when, when God says, I want you to do this, 
and we're waiting for God to make us want to do something that he's caused, called us to do. Um, and again, Calvinists are sometimes very vocal about not becoming fatalistic in their practice of their worldview, but that doesn't keep the fact that it does happen uh, quite regularly uh, by people's own admission. And so that, that's another detrimental aspect of this is that people can start to live more like the frozen chosen, um, becoming more uh, spiritually and uh, theologically or evangelistically inactive because they fall back on some sovereign decree or some view of, of, of God and his view and his, his ways of working. Now I'm real quick to say I Piper and others are very evangelistic Calvinists and they are very, very evangelistic Calvinists. We're not trying to say that all Calvinists are anti-evangelistic, but you can't deny the fact that there have been groups of those who adopt the Calvinistic system who have become anti-evangelistic and who have become fatalistic in their approach to these doctrines. And that is the issue, is that if it's false, that is completely unnecessary for people to fall into that way of thinking because of a false interpretation of Romans 9 and other passages. Yeah, I mean, that view, um, I, yeah, that, that, that idea, what you said a, a couple of statements ago about some people just thinking, well, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not des- uh, determined or predestined to be saved. Uh, my brother, who's not a Christian, um, has said that to me, like, well, if I grew up believing this, I guess I'm just not chosen. And that, when he first said that a couple of years ago, it really messed me up. I was like, wow, like, well, and then I thought, well, what if he's not? Then that got me into a whole other kind of, you know, anxiety, mental space of just like, what do I do with this? If I have no control or, or if he has no control over that. But I, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, it's not about um, saying that, that, that the people who subscribe to that ideology, um, to, to that theology are, are doing damage by no means, but the, I thought I think that, that that the theological viewpoint of Calvinism can create more hurdles than it needs to to come in and to know Jesus. Well, I don't know if you saw the re- most recent broadcast I did with um, Eli. Uh, I I don't remember how to pronounce his last name. Um, uh, he's a pastor who's talking to an atheist, Pine Creek, uh, on um, on YouTube. Yes, and, I just listened to that one today. Yeah, he's a Calvinist, um, but he was he was a consistent Calvinist. I'll give him that. But he was kind of explaining to this atheist uh, that under Calvinism, he really doesn't have any control of, of the fact whether he'll believe or not. And I was just cringing. Obviously, that's why I did the broadcast was because this is how it can practically play itself out where you've got this Calvinist being confronted by this atheist. Who, and the atheist asked him, what is the gospel? Yeah. You know, to, how do I be how am I to be saved? And, and this presuppositional Calvinist. Well, though well-intending, I think Eli's probably a good guy. We're going to have him on the show and talk through it. Oh, cool. Uh, he, he pretty much lays out the gospel and then he says, but um, there's two sides of that scale. And it's really ultimately God who's going to decide what you, what you will choose to do. And, and, and Pine Creek understands this well enough to go, Oh, so you're saying I really don't have any control over whether I come to Jesus or not. Right. Uh, well, he said, if you want to, then it'll be because God chose you. But if you don't want to, he said, well, I don't want to. So it must be because God doesn't want me. Right. And he said, well, presumably we don't know, you know, what ended up happening in your life. But I mean, he just pretty much practically plays it out. And this is what's so detrimental about it is that um, on my view, I say, no, Pine Creek, God's not withholding anything from you. God God doesn't have this secret, irresistible faith that he's just not giving you. Okay. It's your responsibility to humble yourself and repent and believe. And if you don't, if you suppress the truth, you'll grow as you probably have already hardened and calloused to the gospel and to the truth of God's word. But that's your fault. It's not because God doesn't want you or God hasn't provided for you. And that's, and that's where the implications of Calvinism 
play themselves out in, in, a, in, a, in a detrimental way in evangelism. Mm-hmm. Great. Rob, any final thoughts or questions? No, I think that was a very good discussion, good summarization. I, we, again, we really appreciate your time and coming on and talking with us. Um, we, we also value this discussion, value this topic. And I, I know Tim and our, our other host, Jordan, we're very um, desirous that uh, evangelism would go out and that Christians in whole would be built up. So I hope that this 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 discussion and this uh, talk with you will help do that. Amen. Well, it's been my pleasure to be here, guys, and appreciate your heart and appreciate the invitation. Thanks so much. God bless. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus. But where's the water? What's your plan?